Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 91, James I and Witchcraft. I wanted to get this done in time for Halloween, but I didn't, and instead I released a few other Halloween-themed episodes I'd done for my podcast network, Agora. Speaking of Agora, how many of you are smart, savvy, and want to reach the tens of thousands of people who download Agora member podcasts every month? If our listeners would fit your ad goals, I invite you to check out agorapodcastnetwork.com to learn more about advertising with us. Quick announcement on the Tudor Planner. The 2018 Tudor Planner, or Diary if you're in the UK, is a weekly and monthly diary filled with Tudor history, music, listening suggestions, an exclusive Spotify playlist, quotes, all wrapped up in a gorgeous cover inspired by an illuminated manuscript. And it's now available for pre-order and it's going to ship around November 15th. They are so gorgeous. I'm so pleased with how they came out. I made a lot of changes after the feedback from last year, which was the first year I did it and it came out so well. So if you pre-order right now before November 15th, you get a discount of $5 off the regular price and you will get them before anybody else does. So you can go to tutorplanner.com to see a video of the planner, pictures, and get all of the ordering information. Finally, I need to thank my patrons. I have amazing patrons. Thank you to Kathy, Jurgen, Ashley, Kendra, Anne Boleyn, also known as Jessica, Elizabeth, Cynthia, Judy, Kaylee, Ian, Laura, Barbara, Shar, Kiva, Amy, Allison, Joanne, Kathy, Christine, Annetta, Mary, Catherine, Candice, Rebecca from TudorsDynasty.com, Al, and Shandor. I love you guys. You're awesome. To find out how you can join this exclusive list of awesome people, head on over to EnglandCast.com and click on the Donate and Support button in the top menu. So many of us are familiar with the idea of witchcraft trials during the 16th and 17th century, both in Europe as well as America. Of course, the Salem witch trials. Europe was in a full-on panic about witchcraft in this period, and no one represents this better than James I. He was obsessed with all things relating to witchcraft. He even wrote his famous work, Demonology, literally the science of demons, to warn his subjects of the dangers in their midst. So the idea of demons and witchcraft wasn't new. People had been afraid of evil signs ever since pre-Christian times, 
This is a period when superstitions become medical treatments. As I've talked about before, people like John Dee, who was a scientist, also had a conjuring table. This is a period when monarchs have their own personal astrologers to tell their future. Pregnant women are told not to look at a full moon because it would make their child insane. During the Middle Ages, towns had wise healing women, herbalists, and midwives who could be at risk of being accused of being a witch, especially if they had no family to protect them as they got older. But in general, these healing witches, they were often accepted, left alone, even respected. There was this whole world of magic and the supernatural that was simply a part of everyday life in this time period. Wise women or men were called cunning folk. You would go to them for healing, or maybe if you had been bewitched in an evil way, you would go to them for advice and to get a counterspell. It wasn't just women, there were men as well. One cunning man, a famous one, was called John Wrightson, old Wrightson, the wise man of Stokesley. Now he was an expert in telling whether your horse had been bewitched and then curing it if it had. But part of the Reformation and then the Counter-Reformation, the Spanish Inquisition, and this whole world of religious upheaval, part of this centered on the idea of personal responsibility of a person with their God. The Protestant idea of salvation by faith, of a personal relationship with the divine, that could be flipped around to apply to the devil as well. There was this idea suddenly that an individual perhaps made a pact with Satan in order to achieve something here on earth. In a sense, there was a new shadow theology that dealt with the darker side of a personal relationship with God. And this sprang up. Most theologians agreed that these dark witches did not act alone. There was entire communities of these dark witches, a whole shadow world, a whole shadow congregation, as it were, worshiping Satan, making bets with Satan or, or agreements with Satan in order to achieve something here on earth. It was almost like the opposite of Christianity, which was Christianity being, of course, doing good works and having faith in order to have a better afterlife. And these new ideas about witchcraft were more about making a bet with Satan in order to have a, a good life here on earth and not worrying as much about the afterlife or being guaranteed that you were going to be with Satan and that would be good. So in the past, even if a woman had been accused of being a witch and had been killed, that would have been it. Witch gone, community happy. Now people demanded more witches. You could never have just one. You needed a coven. Also, the distinction between healing magic and darker magic ended. Suspected witches were punished, even those wise women that younger women in communities had looked up to in the past. Arresting one witch invariably would lead to the arrest of others because suspects were tortured and encouraged to name their partners. Torture was actively encouraged on women during this period. This is the period when witchcraft officially becomes illegal, enshrined in law. The first Witchcraft Act in England was passed in 1542, and it defined witchcraft as a felony, a crime punishable by death, and the forfeiture of the convicted felon's goods and chattels. It had been repealed five years later, but then restored under Elizabeth in 1562. So that brings me to James. James was just a toddler when his mother, Mary Queen of Scots, abdicated and escaped to England, where she was held for nearly 20 years before being killed. Apparently, James had a premonition of her execution before it actually happened, seeing her floating head in his dreams. Now, he was a child who was apparently quite fearful of monsters and all of the things that go bump in the night, which isn't surprising given what his childhood was like. 
Scotland at this time was filled with factions. It was a really difficult place to govern, as Mary Queen of Scots experienced herself. King James formally assumed power in Scotland in 1583. He was the tender age of 17. The king, James, was still the head of the church, which was Protestant, but the religious differences were still very strong, stoking the king's paranoia of the possibility that he could be overthrown. In February 1589, he found out that one of his most influential lords, George Gordon, was part of a Catholic group that secretly promised to provide support to Spain if they chose to invade. This is an important part of witchcraft history. It provides the context of why James was so worried about witches, especially when they involved this element of treason and personal harm to him. James ran full steam ahead on witches in 1590. That's when this all starts for James. Prior to this year, witches weren't really prosecuted that much in Scotland. And in fact, just a few years earlier in 1583, the General Assembly complained that witchcraft seemed to carry no penalty despite being outlawed in 1563. Now, the Scottish Act of 1563 established witchcraft as a crime punishable by death, but it didn't give a complete definition for what was considered the crime of witchcraft. Was healing a crime? No one knew. The Act condemned witchcraft, sorcery, and necromancy, But what did that really mean? In 1590, James had an experience that would forever change him and direct his actions for a decade or more. The marriage between James and Anne of Denmark took place by proxy on August the 20th, 1589, at Kronberg Castle in Elsinore, Denmark. James was not present, but he was represented by a proxy. Shortly after the marriage, Anne took a ship to Scotland to be with her new husband. But terrible weather and a series of mishaps at sea forced the ship to take shelter in a port on the coast of Norway. Anne traveled overland with her retinue to Oslo. When James heard of this great storm that had driven back Anne's ship, he did something really romantic. He sailed from Scotland himself to go rescue his bride. His own crossing back to Scotland was also really stormy. Now this mixed with the trouble that Anne had encountered. And the storm must have seemed really strange to James, who was also known to be quite superstitious, of course. Then a third storm struck his ship and almost wrecked it as he was bringing his bride home to Edinburgh in the spring of 1590. It confirmed to James his conviction that the Danish royal family and nobility, who he had met with over the Christmas season when he had been in Denmark with his wife, that they had been correct. Witches were working black magic to keep Anne out of Scotland. Denmark had a much greater prevalence of witchcraft than Scotland during this time. James was really influenced by the Danish beliefs. Soon after this, the Danish authorities arrested, tried and executed six witches for causing the storm that had stopped Anne from reaching Scotland to start with. Back in Scotland, a man named David Seaton accused his servant, Gillis Duncan, of being a witch because of her history of miraculously healing people of ailments. Now, she was tortured and she confessed. She gave the names of her alleged accomplices. One of these accused, Agnes Sampson, then confessed under pressure to conspiring with many other witches. She talked about raising a storm for the Queen's coming home. This, of course, caught the King's attention. And it further heightened his interest to the point where he became directly involved in the trials. He interrogated suspects himself. Very soon, more than a 100 suspected witches in the North Berwick trials were arrested. Many confessed under torture to having met with the devil in the church at night and devoted themselves to doing evil, including poisoning the king and the other members of his household 
and attempting to sink the king's ship. They were also accused of performing perverted rituals in a church in Berwick. Now, in December 1591, James had something else really traumatic happen to him. A treasonous group of political dissenters trapped the king in a remote tower of his home and set fire to it. A group of people from Edinburgh stopped the rioters, but the king was terrified, of course. He saw the event as more proof that people were actively trying to get him. All of these events were outlined in a pamphlet that was published called News from Scotland, and James was really involved in publishing that pamphlet. According to the author, James was initially skeptical of Agnes Sampson's claims until she repeated the conversation that he and Queen Anne had had on their wedding night. So she knew something that he had talked about with Anne on their wedding night, and she wouldn't have had any opportunity to have heard that conversation. And it convinced James that she really was a witch. Like I said, more than 100 people were arrested, subjected to tortures to get confessions for a range of crimes, including treasons. The worst of these tortures was the boot. Now, this involved driving a wedge between boards strapped to the legs until the boards crushed the bones in the feet and the shins. The North Barrack trials dragged on for two years, and by the time they ended, 70 men and women were convicted of witchcraft and treason. Among the charges was the claim that they had tried to take the life of the king with poison and black magic. It's not known how many were executed, but the form of execution at the time was burning at the stake, of course. Usually what they would do in Scotland, it was considered an act of mercy, was to strangle the condemned before they were burned. This was, this was considered a nice thing to do. James took such a role in the interrogations of the accused witches in their trials that at one point, a Scottish jury acquitted one of the accused. Her name was Barbara Napier. They said they didn't have any evidence that she was actually a witch. He used his power as king to void their verdict, and he still ordered her execution. He even said that the jury members themselves who had found her not guilty, they should be put on trial for acquitting a witch. Now, Napier had very influential friends. She was able to avoid her execution by pretending that she was pregnant. And then soon enough, she was released. So she got out of it. But it just goes to show how convinced James was that this stuff was real and was out to get him. The North Berwick witch trials greatly influenced Shakespeare when he wrote Macbeth. It contains many references to the trials. It was a huge thing that was going on in the British Isles at this time. It was a big part of popular culture. And this leads me to a question about why anyone would plead guilty to witchcraft and confess. And even though a lot of these were, of course, forced confessions, the fact is some of these women did actually believe that they were witches. It's really likely, of course, when you're hungry, when you're oppressed, when you don't have control of your own life or of your own destiny, this idea that you could actually have had a bond with the supernatural, even the evil side, it could be really appealing. It could make you special. It could make you feel as if you had some kind of power over your life that you didn't really. So for some of these women, they did dabble in witchcraft and it was a form of rebellion. It was something that they took pride in. It was something that made them feel better about themselves. Now, of course, we can say witchcraft doesn't exist, of course, but for some of them, at least most of them not, but there were a few of them who did take pride in calling themselves a witch and being part of this community. The publicity of the North Berwick trials grew the belief and the fear of witches in Scotland, as well as in England, but mostly in Scotland we're talking about here. And the interest in witchcraft spanned all classes during the 1590s. Each group would look for explanations for the challenges they faced. For five years in the mid-1590s, there were harvest failures. There was a lot of starvation. 
That meant people weren't paying rents on their land, so that affected the wealthy classes as well. And this wasn't directly attributed to witchcraft, but there were huge social tensions. People were looking for something to blame. People were looking for explanations. And when you have a king even who's saying, well, here's a possible explanation, people want to latch onto that. They want to have that and make them feel as if they're solving a problem. You know how good it can feel if you've got this problem and suddenly you, you hit on an answer, even if it's the wrong answer? You're like, yeah, I've solved it. You didn't, but it makes you feel good for that moment. So the combination of all of this resulted in another massive witch hunt in 1597. And this witch hunt differed from the North Berwick trials. It didn't begin from one particular trial. Instead, individual trials all kind of merged together and became these conspiracy cases with questioners pressing for the names of accomplices. And much like his role in North Berwick, James became really involved after an accused witch confessed to attempting to hurt him. It's unclear exactly when James began work on his most famous book, his treatise, Demonology. He published it in 1597, following that year's massive witch hunt. It gave insight into his experiences both in the North Berwick Trials and the 1597 hunt. He explained in detail the crimes of witchcraft, the crime of necromancy, discussing both witches and magicians. He writes on the relationship between necromancers and witches, emphasizing that despite some differences, both of these groups had strict and sole allegiances to the devil. I have to say it's really difficult for me to say necromancers in this context because I play Skyrim, or I I did more before I became a mom. (laughs) And there's all these necromancers that you have to go and, and kill. And, you know, they raise the dead and there's I always remember saying like, oh, I hate those necromancers. So um, there you go. James also provided a description of the practices that witches would engage in. He talked about the importance of the devil's pact, writing that they begin to weary of the raising of their master by conjuring circles, being both so difficult and perilous, and so cometh plainly to a contract with him wherein is specially contained forms and effects. He talked about gatherings of witches as ceremonies, almost like a congregation, this inversion of Protestant rituals. New witches would renounce their baptism, and then they would receive a devil's mark. And all of these descriptions became very common in witchcraft trials and witch hunts throughout the next century. He talked not only about the practices, but also he talked about the ways to physically identify witches in demonology. He argued that one of the most important parts of the process of becoming a witch was the denunciation of your baptism. And then he talked about his strong belief in the devil's mark, and that would be given to a witch when she denounced her baptism. The devil's mark is also known as the witch's mark, and this was thought to be the initiating mark that the devil placed on your body. This would seal your pledge of allegiance and obedience to the devil. Usually the mark was blue or red. It was believed to have been made by the devil's claw. At times, the devil left his mark by licking the body as well. He supposedly branded witches at the end of the initiation rite, and the marks were in secret places such as in armpits or body cavities. These marks were proof that the person was a witch, and all witches and sorcerers were considered to have at least one. 
People who were accused of witchcraft were thoroughly searched for these marks. So you can imagine how humiliating that would have been. You know, you're a woman and you're at home, maybe with your family, and this group of men comes to your house and take you into a room and they strip you naked. They would also shave you so that you couldn't hide a mark and they would prod and poke you until they found a mark. Now, who among us doesn't have a birthmark or a blemish or something like that, a patch of skin that's odd? We all have things like that, especially as you get older. So experts said that, you know, natural things were clearly distinguishable from Satan's mark, but that wasn't often adhered to. People would protest that the authorities would find marks on their bodies, that these were natural marks, and those protests were generally ignored. Another way to find the devil's mark was to prick the skin. So pins would be driven into scars, calluses, and and sometimes this was done in front of a jeering crowd. Again, imagine the humiliation. It's just frightening to think about. But this is what they thought at the time. There was this frenzy all over Scotland about witches and you, you had to protect yourself. So King James, with his obsession for this, he was actually there for a lot of these prickings and was part of this process. And he wrote a lot about the mark being this crucial element for identifying the witch. The The process of pricking the devil's mark was used even before the North Berwick trials, but he endorsed this test and that meant that it was used throughout Scotland in the whole next century. The reason why the king's ideas in demonology took on such a life of their own and became so popular and made such difference in being able to search for witches was because of that vagueness of that Scottish Act of 1563 that didn't outline what witches actually were. That made it possible and necessary for somebody to step up and outline exactly what witchcraft was, exactly how to be able to tell who a witch was and how to tell what witchcraft was. So that ambiguity in 1563 made it possible 35 years later for James to step in and talk about it himself. One of the first things James did when he became king of England after Elizabeth's death was to have demonology republished. But he soon got busy with the work in England. He thought that England was a bit more of a civilized country and he didn't think witchcraft was such a big issue in England. And so his interest kind of started to wane at that point. But the work that he did in the 1590s would be so important in Scotland for the next century and even into the New World and in Massachusetts with Salem. All of this was based on the writings of demonology and this interest that James I had, this obsession that he had over witches. So there's a lot of stuff written about James. You can read Demonology. It's in the public domain now. And there's some great books and videos on the subject. I'm putting all of that in the show notes at englandcast.com. So you can check that out. And remember to check out tutorplanner.com as well to see the gorgeous 2018 diary and also consider supporting the show on Patreon. You can get in touch with me through the listener support line at 8016-TESCO, 801-683-9756, or through Twitter at Tesco or facebook.com slash englandcast. 
Thanks so much for listening. I'm finally going to get off all of this Reformation and religious stuff. I've got some great episodes planned for the rest of 2017. The very next one is going to be me talking with Nathan Amin of the Henry Tudor Society about touring Tudor Wales. Now, you might know that I have a tour planned with him next April, where we're going to visit a lot of these great sites in Tudor Wales. And so in this next episode, we're actually going to go through and walk through all of the different places where we're going to go on our tour. And he's going to give us a history lesson about all these places. So even if you can't come on the tour, it's going to be a really interesting episode to hear about this part of Tudor Wales, which is something that we don't really think that much about as we look at Tudor history. So visiting Tudor Wales is going to be the next episode next week. Thanks so much for listening. And I will talk to you again very soon. Blow northern wind, send for baby sweating. Blow northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hoort a bird in Bowerbrick, that soul is Sam Lee's on seek. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.